During his first term in office, President Obama tried, without success, to move a climate change bill through Congress. Now the president is sidestepping the legislative process and taking a different approach by proposing EPA regulations that would require the nation's power plants to cut down on carbon emissions. This is one of the most aggressive actions the U.S. government has taken to fight climate change, and environmentalists are hailing it as a major step forward. But in Indiana, where coal is responsible for 80% of electric power, some business organizations are saying the regulations will have devastating effects on the economy. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, and this week on Noon Edition, we will talk with guests to discuss how these proposed rules would affect Indiana, and we, we will begin our conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And uh, today we're going to talk about what the uh, president did earlier this week. President Obama announced that he the uh, new EPA regulation, regulations sorry, that would cut carbon dioxide emissions by 30 percent by 2030 compared to uh, – cut by 30% compared with 2005. So we're going to talk with guests today to see how those proposed rules are going to affect Indiana and how the state is likely to handle the new regulations. The state has a lot of – they have the authority to decide how to handle it. And we have two guests with us in the studio and one guest who's going to be joining us by phone in the studio with us now are Kerwin Olson from the Citizens Action Coalition and Phil Stevens, who teaches in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. Joining us in the second half of the show will be Cam Carter with the Indiana Chamber of Commerce. He's vice president of federal relations. You can ask your questions or uh, give us your comments by joining the program at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the local calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So, uh, Kerwin and Phil, thanks for being here today. And pleasure Mary to be Catherine, here. always Hi, always a pleasure. We always appreciate pleasure. the invite. Sure. And, uh, you know, the first half of the show, we'll be talking about um, the uh, the 30% Reduction and uh, Kerwin, I'll, I'll turn to you first. And I, I think that you and Cam Carter probably have different positions, but Cam will be on the second half. Of the that show, should so. be expected, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. So, um, what do you think about about the president's um, announcement? Do you think this is a, a good step forward? Uh, absolutely, this is uh, an incredibly positive step forward. It's long overdue for the United States to take a leadership role uh, in mitigating the impacts of climate change by reducing emissions from. Uh, the biggest culprit, which is uh, fossil fuel power plants. I think it should also be understood that the 30% is a, is a nationwide goal. Uh, Indiana only has to achieve about a 20% reduction by 2030, which is uh, modest and more than achievable in a cost-effective manner. I was curious. The thing that jumped out at me when I read this was that um, they're cutting carbon dioxide emissions by 30% 
by 2030 compared with 2005 levels. How did they, I mean, it's 2014, so that's nine years ago. Why, why did they pick that year? I know that bill writing is, uh, you know, like sausage making. You don't really want to see what goes into it. But, I mean, how did they come up with that year? Well, 2005 uh, is the year in which uh, baseline levels have been used and discussed in, in various international treaties. And so it's packs. kind of an industry standard it, sort of thing? It's been the standard for a while to uh, reflect back to 2005 as the appropriate baseline. Interesting. Okay. I think it also represents kind of the peak, the highest levels. And, and so there has been some discussion whether we should have used a you know, more recent level. Uh, but that means that since CO2 emissions have dropped uh, since 2005, yeah. that the you kind of get credit for what's already reduction has already yeah. uh, started. So. Mm-hmm. so Phil Stevens teaches in SPIA and you, you're uh, – area of expertise is air pollution. You also teach climate change. So what, what's this likely to do in terms of air pollution? What's happened since 2005? How successful have we been in reducing pollution? Well, we've been uh, in, in Indiana and the rest of the U.S. has been uh, reducing emissions from power plants for a long time uh, through a variety of programs. Uh, the most recent has been the uh, 1997 uh, EPA focus on nitrogen oxide reductions. And uh, these have been very successful uh, in, in Indiana and the rest of the country at reducing NOx emissions, which has helped to uh, improve ozone and fine particulate uh, concentrations in, the, in Indiana and the U.S. Um, but we still have, you know, ways to go to do it. And there may be uh, a reduction in the current ozone standard um, coming up soon. It should have been this year, but it will probably be in the future. So there's going to be further reductions needed to improve ozone and fine particulates. And so this will have the the added benefit of helping to reduce some of those emissions as well. Mm-hmm. Phil, it, something I wonder about and worry about, and I, I think other people do too. Okay, so it, it's great that whatever progress we make along these lines is fantastic. But because of unregulated emissions in emerging countries, are we really just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic? Well, certainly the, you know, the developing countries have, have been increasing their CO2 emissions. Uh, but I think, and as we're seeing now this week, that, that one of the issues with their not uh, you know, signing on to any type of reductions is the fact that the U.S. hasn't been taking a, a leadership role. And then now that, that the U.S. has begun a leadership role, I think we can begin to expect to see some of the other countries signing on as well. I mean, why should China reduce their emissions if the U.S. isn't? Do um, we have any um, leverage to encourage that aside from just showing leadership? Uh, well, you're getting a little bit outside my range of expertise uh, with international environmental policy, but I, you know, certainly we, we would have more leverage if we are doing something than uh, if we weren't doing anything at all. Yeah, makes sense. All right. If you want to join the program, eight five five zero eight one one or one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also join the live chat at wfiu dot org slash noon edition. You can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. We're talking about uh, President Obama's announcement this week of new EPA regulations to cut carbon dioxide emissions by thirty percent. Uh, by 2030 compared with the 2005 levels, what that might do for to, to or for Indiana and uh, the rest of the, the country. I want to talk about um, our perspective. I mean, we are coming from a perspective here today, and I just want to be very transparent about this, that 
climate change is a very real problem for uh, the United States and the world. There may be some listeners out there who don't believe that. They might call us. We but believe. I, but I want to, I <laughs> you know, Phil Stevens teaches climate change. So, what, you know, what's the, what's the data that shows this and, you know, what's the, what's the evidence? Well, there's all kinds of evidence. And, you know, I, I've been teaching this for many, many years, and the evidence just keeps growing and growing. Uh, you know, CO2 is a greenhouse gas. It's very simple. The physics of how it absorbs heat energy is very well known. Concentrations of CO2 have been rising since the Industrial Revolution. This year, we have reached that 400 parts per million level, which is, mm-hmm. you know, just part of another trend, but does kind of represent this, this you know, uh, you know, baseline that we've never really thought about before. Um, and we know that it's due to fossil fuel burning. Uh, there's a variety of scientific evidence that shows that it's due to, to burning of fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, the evidence that we see is increase in, in temperatures uh, globally since the, uh, you know, since, you know, surface temperatures have been measured, but we can use uh, temperature proxies to go back, you know, thousands of years and, and, and see that the temperature higher is higher now than it has been uh, in a long time. Uh, melting of glaciers, land ice, uh, rising sea levels, increase in o- ocean acidification. There are all kinds of signs that the climate is changing. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about fossil fuels, Kerwin, uh, we're talking primarily about coal or, or in Indiana, we're talking primarily about coal. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. We have a tremendous amount of coal-fired capacity here in Indiana. We're in the top three or four states in terms of uh, reliance uh, on coal for our power. At one point, we were uh, well over 90% of our electricity came from coal-fired power plant. Mm-hmm. We've seen a slight decrease in that, um, partially due to natural gas uh, expanding its its marketplace reach. But, yeah, we're primarily talking about in Indiana here, coal-fired power plants. And I want to get to some of what the Citizens Action Coalition has done in terms of trying to uh, work on this issue. But we've got a phone call, so I'm going to go to Stan from Bloomington. Stan? Uh, thank you. I, I wonder if the uh, as people there can comment on the health-related issues. Um, we have a uh, hesitancy in, in the executive here to... Um, broaden uh, health coverage, and uh, I'm assuming that reduction in the use of coal would be a major health benefit as well. And I, I've heard and read some things about it, but I wonder if that could be discussed. Well, we'll see. We don't have any physicians in the room, however. Uh, well, we have, uh, we have worked with uh, the IU School of Public Health and Dr. Stephen Jay, who did a, a report several years back that showed that the uh, cost to Indiana in terms of uh, uh, lost wages, lost productivity, missed days at work, missed days at schools from coal-fired power plants cost Indiana in excess of $5 billion a year. So reducing uh, those pollutions uh, in our air will, will definitely improve uh, the Indiana economy. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, Stan, I also have uh, just some data that I brought with me. The EPA reports uh, that if these um, standards are implemented or when they're implemented, it'll save 6,600 lives by to 2030 uh, and more than $50 billion a year, actually 6,600 lives a year and more than $50 billion a year in health care costs tied to air pollution. So wow. there is some yeah. some evidence there. It, yeah, is, and it is true that there's an economic uh, cost to reduction in, in, in coal use, but it certainly sounds as if it's counterbalanced well. Yeah, and in addition to the benefits that come from uh, reducing carbon emissions, the impact of the, uh, of the new carbon rule would also result in a uh, additional 25% reduction in particulates, 
uh, nitric oxide and also sulfur dioxide. So there's ancillary benefits uh, to this yeah. rule that go above and beyond carbon mitigation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. All right, Stan. Thanks for the call. And again, if you want to give us a call, eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join us on a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And Laura did join us on live chat, and she'd like to know what can citizens do to encourage Indiana to adopt energy efficiency and renewable energy programs? Well, that's something Citizens Action Coalition has worked on uh, for a number of years, and I think the most important thing would be to understand that those policies begin and end uh, with the Indiana General Assembly at the State House, not necessarily in Washington, D.C., and communicating uh, the benefits uh, and the importance of investing in energy efficiency and, and clean energy to uh, state legislators that set these policies uh, uh, is incredibly important. There seems to be somewhat of an education gap uh, at the General Assembly about what uh, what clean energy is, what energy efficiency is, and the positive benefits that that have on, on both our health, our environment, and also our economy. Are there any summer study committees working on this? Yeah, there's been numerous summer study committees over the years addressing issues such as uh, uh, solar power, wind power, etc. There is a uh, a report due to the commission or due to the General Assembly this summer uh, from the Regulatory Commission with respect to the outcomes of the uh, previous uh, Energizing Indiana programs. But at this current moment in time, there's no public meeting or public hearing uh, scheduled, but we believe uh, there will be. What process do you use to educate legislators? Uh, you gotta you got to educate the constituents. you got to encourage them to uh, reach out and meet with them uh, when they're in town. You've got to encourage folks to show up at the State House and uh, uh, speak directly uh, to legislators uh, when they're when they're working. Okay. All right. Back to the phones. Uh, Brandon from Bloomington is on the phone. Brandon. Yes. Hey, go ahead. All right. Um, I was recently watching a YouTube video that a friend had shared on Facebook, and it was it dealt with solar roadways and their hexagonal units that was actually installed in road roadways that would generate. I think the statistic is. All of the United States roadways were converted to solar-powered units, then about three times as much electricity could be generated. I didn't know if anyone on your side um, has any has heard any information regarding uh, this type of technology and its developments. Well, I remember reading uh, some reports and some articles with respect to solar roadways. It's not something we've examined or researched in any great detail, but it is an example of uh, the enormous opportunity uh, that's out there that exists uh, with with clean energy, most uh, most notably solar power. Mm-hmm. Brandon, are these being uh, th- this just something that's an idea now? Are they being used anywhere? Any small tests or anything? Uh, they were developed by two engineers. It was a couple that met when they were really young, and they've actually developed these. And I think they got kickstarted by uh, some investors. Um, I'm not sure of implementation mm-hmm. in the country, but I. I watched the video, and it was really exciting to me. Um, also, uh, they have utilization for LED lights um, that mm-hmm. can be programmed to also have pressure sensitivity and notify drivers that, of, like, oncoming obstacles or letting them know to slow down. Um, so there's a, I think there's a lot of opportunity there, um, and I just didn't know if anyone on that side had uh, done any research into that type of technology. Right. Well, we don't. We haven't. Uh, we don't have a panelist who's done any research on it, but I'm sure that it's an interesting topic, and we may do more on it in the future. Oh, absolutely. Thank All right. you. All right. Thanks a lot for the call. 
855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the local calling area. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So since Indiana is one of, in the, I, I believe you said, the, at least the top five of states that are coal-dependent, I assume that then um, we'll be given a little more uh, flexibility as far as uh, trying to find replacements. What are, what's being looked at? Well, the EPA has proposed a 20% reduction in, in CO2 emissions here in Indiana, and they have offered a, a wide variety of menu options to choose from to uh, comply with that. Uh, they have recommended to the state of Indiana that about 9% of that be achieved by end-use energy efficiency, just reducing our consumption. We're an incredibly in energy-intensive state, both at the residential, commercial, and industrial level. Uh, a portion of that, uh, 6% or so, can be reduced just by uh, changing the way in which we dispatch our power plants rather than uh, running coal 80% of the time and natural gas 15% of the time, reduce coal generation to 70% and ramp up natural gas to 20 25%. They believe we can achieve an additional 3% or so from increasing um, uh, generation from renewable energy, both uh, wind power and solar energy. Um, and so between those four options, uh, just uh, changing the way in which we dispatch our power plants, investing uh, in energy efficiency, and also improving the efficiency of our coal plants. They believe that uh, Indiana can achieve about a 5.6% of that 20% reduction just by making the existing coal plants uh, more efficient in their operation. And uh, because the coal plants today are incredibly inefficient, uh, waste a tremendous amount uh, of waste heat, and we can capture uh, you know more energy from the existing plants than we currently do. Mm-hmm. Phil Stevens, in your uh, study of air pollution, can you tell us much about how how successful coal plants have been in terms of reducing air pollution through the the different measures they've taken? Well, uh, in Indiana, for for example, the nitrogen oxides it's part of a, a summertime cap and trade program, um, and so that gives utilities the flexibility of deciding of whether they want to you know use uh, uh, some type of external scrubbing type technique using using uh, 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 some sort of catalytic uh, technology or they can use a low NOx boiler type technology and they can offset some of those reductions with with emissions from other plants that may not be as as uh, economically um, uh, viable to, to do and so uh, by having that flexibility I think that there's been a lot of success in being able to reduce emissions same with the uh, acid rain program from you know, the 1990 Clean Air Act, which is another cap-and-trade program uh, that gives, you know, utilities the flexibility of offsetting emissions with one uh, plant with with the emissions from another plant or, or, you know, buying and trading permits. And, you know, one of the options that Indiana has is to to join in with some of the other state-run cap-and-trade programs for carbon dioxide uh, which in California has uh, just started out, and, and that can be used as a model of, of how emissions can be reduced in a flexible manner. Okay, we have a phone call from Charlotte. Charlotte? Yes. Uh, yes, thank you for taking my call. I'm, I'm wondering how much effort has gone into rallying local governments and institutions like that, possibly even the state, to uh, insist on, on, um, on encouraging uh, more sustainable uh, um, power power development or power sources. 
It occurs to me that the city of Bloomington, for example, spends almost a half a million dollars a year simply for to Duke Energy, simply for the for the traffic lights and the street lights, and you know it's significantly more for all the other uses in the city. And that there's city after city and town after town who are major, major users of electricity, who should have a say in how they are how their uh, power is being generated. I wonder how much rallying we have to get support for that. All right. Thanks, Charlotte. Appreciate that's it. Kurt, very right? interesting statistic, Charlotte. Thank you. Yeah, well, that's just the tip of the iceberg, is, or whatever. Yeah. That's probably yeah. the wrong analogy. But yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> right. Those seem like um, ripe candidates for solar energy, don't they? Traffic yep. lights. Yep. yep. Yes. Go ahead, Kirby. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, well, I was just going to say traffic lights is another example. Uh, you know, changing out uh, the traffic lights throughout the state of Indiana to uh, more efficient uh, uh, LED technology would save a tremendous amount of electricity and as a result of that would reduce carbon emissions uh, uh, to a great degree. So that's another example of, uh, of a menu option that would be available to the state. And with respect to municipalities uh, and their utility bills, unfortunately, we would love to see something like uh, municipal aggregation of energy allowing mm-hmm. uh, cities and towns to mm-hmm. come together and purchase wind energy, purchase solar energy, build a community solar farm or something like that. But unfortunately, uh, the statutes in the state of Indiana forbid that uh, from occurring, and that would have to be a change made by the, uh, the Indiana General Assembly to allow uh, communities to aggregate and walk away from their uh, electric service uh, monopolies. However, uh, we have a summer study committee this year to uh, you know, uh, venture down the discussion once again of uh, how important it is to have these electric service territory monopolies and uh, and what that what benefit that brings to the state. So the utilities are working hard to maintain uh, that monopoly stranglehold that they have on the electric system in the grid. Mm-hmm. Kirby, are there other citizens groups that are lobbying uh, for similar issues that you're aware of? Oh, without question. In addition to Citizens Action Coalition, we have our friends at uh, Hoosier Chapter of Sierra Club. Uh, Hoosier Environmental Council, Save the Dunes, uh, Hoosier Interfaith Power and Light, uh, Energy Matters from Columbus. There's multiple groups out there that uh, are taking the lead, uh, not only uh, at the state house but also in their local communities, to encourage uh, local governments and state governments to make this transition to uh, clean energy. Mm-hmm. Phil, I'm just curious, are people like you who are very knowledgeable in this area, uh, are you, um, and I know you work for a state-supported university, <laughs> well, sort of state-supported Start, anymore. State-assisted. State-assisted, <laughs> absolutely, yeah, that's a lot more accurate. Um, but do you uh, interact with government officials at all and say, hey, these are things we're learning and we're, this is what we're worried about and... Well, I actually uh, was on the Indiana Air Pollution Control Board for about uh, 10 plus years uh, from 2000 till about 2012 when then they condensed the boards into one. Um, and so I was involved with uh, a lot of uh, rulemaking and I tried to bring my expertise and, and uh, part of that rulemaking was the, the uh, Knox what we call the Knox SIP call that resulted in the cap and trade. And, and Indiana at that time, uh, this was in 2000 or so, won uh, awards for providing incentives for energy efficiency and things like that. And I think there's a, you know, a lot of that, that citizens can do to try to, to encourage legislatures to, to, to bring that to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the same time, it, there was the uh, time of the Mercury Rule. Uh, this was before the courts struck down the the uh, Bush administration's cap and trade for mercury, which you know I was heavily involved in trying to to put a tighter uh, controls on, and and we heard you know similar arguments from the 
uh, utility industry that you know costs would be skyrocketing. And what ended up happening was that the federal government, or basically the the rule was uh, vacated by the courts, and and uh, uh, and so the uh, you know utilities have to do what we were originally proposing for them to do, and yet you know you don't really hear of the the same issues of the costs and everything. Mm. You know, we can go, so so I think there's uh, a lot that. It, 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 you know, working at the, the federal level or at the state level has, has been rewarding and, and sometimes frustrating. But mm. All right. We're, you. You're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking about uh, the proposed EPA regulations to limit carbon emissions across the country. If uh, you want to join us on the program during the second half, please call us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join us on a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, or you can send us a tweet at Noon Edition. So uh, we'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Communications. More information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. Uh, we're talking today about the uh, proposed EPA regulations to limit carbon emissions across the country. Kerwin Olson from the Citizens Action Coalition is in our studio, as is Phil Stevens from the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Joining us by phone this half of the program will be Cam Carter, Indiana Chamber of Commerce Vice President of Federal Relations. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. And uh, before I get to Cam, we've had uh, John from Bloomington has been waiting uh, patiently on the phone. So, John, go ahead. Yes. Uh, I don't know anybody that would be against, you know, or for global warming or, or pollution, air pollution. Everybody wants cleaner air, but there's a cost involved here. And I'm wondering, don't you think maybe that a lot of the research might be influenced by the funding for that research and the politics may be influenced by the funding for that politics? You know, who does Peabody contribute to, what lobbies and those kind of things? And, you know, like the XL Pipeline, UP. Warren Buffett's railroad hauling oil right now, and I think there's a lot of questions about following the money. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Well, in in terms of the the science part, in terms of uh, you know climate researchers, uh, you know it's not just the U.S. It's you know all over the world, and and you know I, I uh, teach climate change, uh, but I get no money from the government to do research on climate change. My research is funded. 
uh, primarily by uh, uh, National Science Foundation to do air pollution research. And that research, that funding doesn't really support me as much as it supports uh, students and people working in my, my laboratory. Uh, so I, I, I don't, you know, it's not that much money, and I, I just don't see, uh, you know, the uh, scientists being being influenced by by trying to get grants to do research is that you often hear that that they're you know making this stuff up just so they can keep the money uh, flowing. Um, uh, I, you know, I think you know it, it's it, it's kind of you know uh, small potatoes in terms of the amount of funding that you're, you're talking. I, about. I do think uh, perhaps John may have a, a point into looking at who is funding the research and who's hiring what researchers and what, what, what are the credentials of the researchers. I mean, there are definitely um, there's something about the you know, attribution of, of the data and where, where it's coming from that, that's worth checking out. Yeah, I don't think there's any question that uh, money in politics uh, plays a big, uh, big role in influencing the outcome of those decisions. That's why it's so important that uh, policymakers thoroughly vet that information and make sure that policy decisions that we make are, are driven by by data and, and scientific analysis and not, uh, you know, influence uh, from, from industry. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks a lot, John. We appreciate it. Okay. Now, let's go to Cam Carter. Cam, are you there? I am. Hey, thanks for joining us on the program. We've been talking a lot the first half of the program about, uh, you know, the, the environmental benefits from this and uh, about the issues of of uh, climate change. And I know um, the Indiana Chamber and others are very concerned about the cost that would be involved uh, with these new regulations. Can you address that? Yeah, I think that is uh, the major concern of the Indiana Chamber and its members uh, when we look at whatever uh, laws Congress passes, or in this instance does not pass, uh, and then we have a federal government that's attempting uh, to uh, move in a, in a, within a regulatory framework uh, to, to assert new uh, regulatory uh, controls on CO2 emissions. And uh, this is, uh, I think we've got a couple of issues here. We have perhaps a problem with the the process uh, that is uh, going about. It seems to be a bit of an end run around the elected uh, officials in in Congress. Uh, And that also seems to be very much focused on the environmental benefits versus the economic costs. And I think we in Indiana in particular need to be uh, very concerned uh, with what the, the the cost benefit analysis is here uh, not too terribly worked up at this point because we have uh, opportunities to work within the uh, the regulatory framework provide comment maybe even extend the comment period uh, and then of course uh, we fully anticipate uh, not that we would be a party to this but we fully anticipate legal challenges to uh, to what the EPA has has proposed here. Uh, when you talk about I think another concern is uh, are we doing this uh, alone? Uh, are we uh, uh, jumping off a cliff and asking the, the world to follow? Uh, we've seen CO2 emissions in this country uh, declining. Uh, we have seen them rising uh, pre- uh, precipitously uh, in developing countries, China, India, others uh, around the globe. And if uh, we were talking about uh, global, if global warming, global climate change, whatever phrase you, you care to use, uh, it seems that we're uh, incurring a lot, awful lot of economic cost, uh, perhaps uh, without others around the globe following uh, our, our good example if we go down this route. Can, can, uh, so if we're going to have economic cost and, and not have others follow us, 
uh, seems rather self-defeating, uh, particularly in a manufacturing-intensive uh, state, in a state where uh, we still generate 80% of our uh, electricity uh, from, from coal, and that has uh, the potential of severe economic effect on, the, on uh, our industry, our employment, and in particular, uh, middle-class wage earners here in the Hoosier State. Yeah, I wanted to, you to be a little more uh, specific about what, what those economic costs are going to be I and mean, who's going to be affected. Well, anyone who has an electric bill. Mm-hmm. That's who's going to be affected. Uh, we talk about uh, the uh, problems that people discuss around the kitchen table, uh, where their next paycheck's going to come from, whether it'll be there next week, next month, three months down the trail. We talk about uh, you know the affordability of housing, the affordability of, of college. Uh, we need to also be concerned about the affordability of electricity. Uh, the Institute for 21st Century Energy predicts that uh, these regulations could cost in the aggregate nearly $51 billion annually through uh, 2030, which is the target date for the uh, 30% reductions, uh, 20% here in, in uh, uh, Indiana, which is, uh, I suppose the EPA is doing this on a state-by-state basis, uh, according us uh, flexibility. But uh, having worked in Washington, D.C., a good part of my career, uh, oftentimes when bureaucrats talk about flexibility, it's a choice between the noose or the firing squad. And that's certainly uh, how we feel here in in the state of Indiana. Uh, We will lose jobs as a result of these regulations if they go into effect. Uh, We will pay more for electricity, uh, some estimates uh, paying almost $289 billion over the the time period. Uh, Cam, do you have any concern that we'll see market-based reforms uh, and work through uh, multilateral organizations uh, on a global basis to get this done, it doesn't seem that that is occurring. So th- those are our main concerns, uh, and, and those are the, the figures that we have and we will be uh, discussing. Cam, I, <clears throat> I understand that you, you have concerns about losing jobs if, if these uh, regulations go into effect. Do you have any concern about losing lives if they don't go into effect on a global scale? No. If you want to talk about the loss of life, uh, I think uh, you, in the aggregate, look at what if uh, the uh, the perfect utopian solution uh, for this uh, global uh, warming phenomenon or global climate change phenomenon were instituted. You would lose millions of lives. It would make uh, uh, Stalin's uh, purchase within the Soviet Union during his era uh, uh, look like an appetizer. Uh, you have got to have uh, increasing quality of life and economic opportunity for people to bring tens of millions, hundreds of millions, out of poverty around the globe. Uh, that is not going to happen if we have uh, crammed down regulations that say we are going to, in effect, retard economic growth for what seems to be, according to a number of the, of the studies that are out there, minimal environmental benefit. Okay, let's go. We've got a couple phone calls, so we're going to get to those. And thanks, Cam. And hang on, because you may, I may want to ask you some questions. So Pam is first. Sure. Pam's been very patient. Go ahead. Uh, thanks, Bob. Mm-hmm. Thanks for this program too. Sure. Uh, Cam, boy, the talking points. I, I, I've seen these on cable news. I can't say uh, the economic impact. Why we don't think we can change to solar and renewable and save jobs or work on our crushing, our crippled infrastructure. There are jobs to be had. 
You're talking about jo- jobs in the coal energy, and I would say about the rest of the world, let it begin with me. That's what I would say. Here's my question, though. Um, I see wind farms along Highway 13 outside of Elwood. I see them on high, uh, Interstate 65, um, you know, near Chicago. How productive are those? Why are we not hearing about that? Why are we not hearing how that, uh, how that relates to the other energy sources we have available? And why aren't we investing in something like that, that everyone agrees is going to be healthy? I would say that the oil and gas industry, and I think Oklahoma, has convinced their governor to tax solar and renewable energy because they're so mad they can't get a piece of the pie so let's just talk about changing up our mindset and going in a different direction but is it productive enough can we move that way okay i want to get cam to respond then kerwin cam sure i I don't think you certainly won't get an argument from the indiana chamber of commerce or others uh, thinking people that we ought to diversify our energy mix we use you know the the shorthand is the all of the above uh, wind, solar, uh, nuclear, uh, and indeed fossil fuels for the foreseeable future. And even under the predictions, uh, if these regulations are going to affect, coal is still going to be significant in this country, let alone uh, the overseas developing countries that I mentioned earlier. And if I, if I just might rebut for a moment uh, to the caller, Pam, I'm not talking just about coal jobs at risk here. I'm talking about jobs in our manufacturing sector. It takes a lot of electricity uh, to uh, build a Subaru in Lafayette. It takes a lot of electricity to roll steel up in northeast Indiana. It takes a lot of electricity to run laboratories, whether you're uh, building uh, uh, hip replacements for, for the elderly or bringing on a new generation of pharmaceuticals, or you're producing uh, immense amounts of, uh, using immense amounts of energy in the production of, of agricultural goods. So it's not just uh, jobs in a a single industry in the state that we're concerned about. It's jobs across the board that we're concerned about here. Uh, So that... uh that's, uh, that's a point I think is lost often in, in this debate. But we absolutely should be looking at uh, wind and solar as, al- uh, as alternatives. However, there's a huge problem here at this point in time. Uh, wind blows and sometimes it doesn't. Sun shines and sometimes it doesn't. And when it does, it's not at the uh, capacity. Uh, and certainly we do not have the battery technology to store the energy that is through those sources at this point in time to make up for what uh, the, the base load electrical needs are today, let alone tomorrow if we want to have, again, a growing economy that provides middle-class jobs and living income for people around the state of Indiana and the country. All right. Uh, Kerwin Olson? Well, first to the point of uh, wind power here in the state of Indiana, those wind farms are outperforming everyone's expectations, producing energy above a 40% efficiency factor, uh, delivering power at, uh, at less than $0.04 cents a kilowatt hour compared to uh, the nearly $0.22 cents a kilowatt hour that's coming out of Duke Ed- Energy Edwards Board's power plant. Uh, second, I couldn't disagree more with respect to the uh, uh, economic impact on the state of Indiana. First and foremost, companies are looking to locate in states that are looking forward, not looking backwards. Uh, by investing in clean energy here in Indiana, we would create a more attractive uh, business client, uh, business environment uh, for 21st century uh, uh, technologies. Secondly, uh, the evidence is clearly showing that uh, 
Uh, the more you invest in energy efficiency, the more you invest in renewable energy, uh, the more you're mitigating uh, rate impacts and reducing the cost to consumers. So by diversifying and increasing investments in clean energy, we will re- reduce electric rates not only for residential customers, but also industrial customers, again, attracting more business. And with respect to manufacturing jobs, uh, we have a tremendous opportunity here in the state of Indiana to be a leader in manufacturing jobs, not only for uh, components necessary for energy efficiency retrofits, but also the production of, uh, of solar panels, uh, PV components, uh, and wind turbine components. So we see this as a, a huge opportunity, not only to reduce costs uh, to ratepayers, uh, but also create more manufacturing jobs in the state of Indiana and attract more business to locate in our state. Okay, we have about 15 minutes to go in the program, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And we have three callers on the line, so Norma has been waiting the longest. Norma, go ahead. Yes, Kerwin, uh, I couldn't agree with you more, and I'd like the, uh, the, the chamber person to respond to why Indiana would disagree so fervently with uh, a measure that was endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is 60,000 pediatricians strong, and the American Thoracic Society, which is an international organization of um, 15,000 physicians that have basically looked at the data, looked at the science, and strongly supported the measure as it is. Why we don't hear more about that, about the health uh, downside of the pollution that we have already with Indiana ranking so high in toxic emissions that there's a uh, an amazing math game that is played to minimize the emissions in Indiana at the expense of our health. And um, the cost of that, anyone who looks at what Medicaid is costing us, of what health care is costing us, prescriptions costing us, these are chronic illnesses that um, require ongoing medications that, uh, you know, unless we consider the health industry to be a growth industry, uh, that that is uh, fundamentally ignored uh, by our state leadership that has, in fact, um, created a monopoly by the coal industry in our energy policy, and monopolies are not a very good thing in general. So I would just like to have him comment on that as to why Indiana would would uh, would feel that they need to sue the EPA over a measure that was approved by the American Thoracic Society and the American Academy of Pediatrics. All right. Cam Carter from the Indiana Chamber of Commerce uh, is with us. Cam? Uh, I'm unfamiliar with what the uh, organizations the caller just cited have, have said about this other than to in- endorse it wholeheartedly. They will weigh in during the process. Uh, of this rulemaking, as will our, ourselves and, and others. I know that Governor Pence has put out a, a press statement. I saw it, but not familiar with it. Uh, I think I did say something that uh, about uh, uh, conferring with the Attorney General to see what avenues there are. I think the best avenue is for all parties to weigh in uh, to this process, and uh, we'll just see what the, the, the legal uh, uh, challenges to it will will be in, be in the future. I would say that there's a distinct difference between uh, regulatory uh, regimes that try to deal with chemical toxins in our environment versus carbon dioxide. Uh, it, I was working for Senator Richard Luger on Capitol Hill in the 1990s, and when the Clean Air Act was amended in that time period, signed by uh, President H.W. Bush uh, at that time, 
I can tell you that none of the debate was around carbon dioxide. It was around these other toxins. So uh, when, uh, when everything you see in front of you is a nail, you try to reach for the hammer to fix it. Uh, that may be the case here. And, uh, again, we're very concerned about the economic effects of this. And, uh, again, we have no argument with diversifying our energy mix. It's how you go about it, how you do it with the least amount of uh, economic disruption and harm to middle-class families here in the state. All right. I wanted to see if Phil wanted to respond about air pollution and and what goes – you know, what all is involved when you're studying air pollution. Well, you you know, I mean, I I understand that CO2 is a a different beast than when you're talking about – Uh, air toxins like mercury and SO2 and uh, nitrogen oxides. But, you know, the fact is, is that the 1990 Clean Air Act Amendment uh, has been very successful at reducing emissions from power plants uh, without increasing the cost of electricity. And I think, you know, if you go back to the arguments in the 80s, maybe I'm showing my age a little bit here, you know, we were hearing the same thing that, you know, controlling SO2 emissions is going to increase the cost of electricity and hurt manufacturing and, 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 and electricity costs everywhere to consumers. And yet during the, the, the implementation of the act, the emissions of nitrogen oxides and sulfur dioxides dropped 40 percent. Uh, electricity production in the U.S. increased 40 percent. And the cost of electricity actually went down uh, during much of the time. And, uh, you know, I think that President Obama is kind of citing some of these facts that, you know, you, you, I think we want to give, you know, the, the industry a little bit of credit that they're able to adapt and, and having some incentives, you know, they are able to come up with, you know, ways of, of, of meeting these regulations without uh, uh, causing a, a lot of economic harm. Okay, we have uh, four phone callers who've been waiting, and we have about eight minutes to go. So, Wayne, can you be quick? Wayne? Yes. Early in your program, someone said that if we reduce carbon emissions, other countries will follow our example. However, we we have already seen industries moving their headquarters overseas in order to gain better tax rates. So if we restrict carbon emissions, couldn't we expect some of our industries to move their headquarters where there aren't carbon restrictions and in the ultimate worldwide we would actually increase carbon emissions by that action. Let me ask uh, Cam to respond to that. Do you think that would happen? Uh, I think Wayne has stumbled upon something that is uh, of, of great concern. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of science being talked about, but it's the dismal science of economics that we have to be concerned about. And so, yes, if, if uh, we rely upon the goodwill of other, other nations to follow our example and they don't follow it, we absolutely will be handcapping ourselves. And uh, not to get uh, too far afield of the topic of today's program, uh, if we were to modify uh, our tax structure here in the United States, which hasn't been done since uh, 1986, uh, we would see uh, some better tax treatment and more repatriation of overseas profits and uh, more job creation here domestically. Uh, but I think there is a great risk that if we unilaterally impose uh, uh, these regulations upon ourselves, again, to little environmental uh, benefit or effect, that, yes, jobs could be shipped overseas. Uh, globalization is, is not a trend. It is a reality. Okay, Phil, quick. Well, just a quick response. I, I think, you know, everybody knows about Beijing's pollution problems. And, you know, China has already said that they are 
uh, after the U.S. has you know, announced these regulations that they are you know, thinking about trying to cap their emissions as well. And I think you know, their uh, reasons not only are for you know, issues of CO2, but for just for air quality. And so switching away from fossil fuel combustion for their electricity production is going to bring you know, massive health benefits. And I don't think they're going to want to you know, increase their emissions uh, you know, because of uh, health issues. You know, they want to reduce it just as much as, as we do. Okay, let's go back to the phones. David is on the line. David from Bloomington. David? Yeah, I just want to quote from an article by Paul Krugman in last week's New York Times that the Chamber of Commerce just released just before the EPA's report, uh, a report estimating uh, how much the carbon reduction program would cost a little bit more demanding than the one that's been put forth by the administration. It came out to $50 billion a year. Uh, that's in a, in a, uh, in a, in a, a $17 trillion economy. And it comes out to be something like $200. It's, it's one-fifth of one percent of our entire income. Uh, if you look at tomorrow, there's no question this is more expensive. But I have children, and it's going to be so much more expensive for children. Look at the Pentagon's concern with the defense, uh, defense needs uh, and the impact of, of uh, climate disasters. We've seen what's happened in New Orleans. We've seen what's happening to, to good parts of the world where there's massive droughts. Our markets are going to disappear if people don't have, any, don't have water. So again and again, if you look at tomorrow, no question, but if you look at the long run, this is cheap. This is really cheap. And as far as American industries suddenly moving, uh, we're behind. We're behind Europe. We're behind Japan. If we unite with them, China's got to come along because WTO can put pressures on them. Uh, and so if we don't go, nothing's going to happen. And the cost to the American family is going to be immense a few years down the road. So I can't see any, any argument that the, the chambers presented uh, that, that would count at all in this debate. I, I can't see anything except a few people we have a great deal of money invested in a few industries who don't want to lose that money. But for the rest of us, this is a no-brainer. Thank you. All right, David. Thanks. Thanks. David. Let's go to Jim quickly. Jim? Is Jim there? Hi. Jim. Yeah, Jim, go ahead. Okay, let me turn off my radio. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the last caller was talking about the uh, military uh, wanting to address the issue in our Congress, uh, deciding that... Uh, the military should even have its eyes open to this problem. That, that uh, kind of shows you that uh, our uh, government is kind of owned by the, those industries that are interested in uh, preserving the status quo. Uh, there's also a lot of research going on in, in the effects of uh, things like the business or the insurance industry and, and their attempts to uh, cover the risks that they are uh, having to do uh, with this. Uh, George W. Bush uh, took kind of a one IED from his father, who started the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, I believe. Uh, George W. Bush uh, wouldn't even open the report that uh, was emailed to him from the Environmental Protection Agency having to do with carbon. So it isn't that uh, it wasn't an issue back in his day. It uh, just wasn't addressed. So any comments on that? All right, very quickly. We have uh, two minutes to go. Anybody have any comments? Let's just go to our last caller, Charles. Do you have any? Charles, are you there? Yes. Yeah, go, go ahead. Do you have a question? 
Uh, yes, I just wonder if you'd talk about carbon sequestration at all and uh, energy efficiency usage currently. What's the percentage of energy efficient usage by homes, industries, et cetera? And two, um, the idea of a space program, so to speak, for carbon sequestration. Okay, we have less than, we have 90 seconds to go. Kerwin, can you address that? Well, carbon capture and sequestration, of course, has been a hot topic of debate in the state of Indiana for quite some time. Our organization is opposed uh, to carbon and capture and sequestration primarily due to the enormous costs involved. That is money that is better spent on emission-free resources, first and foremost, energy efficiency, and then clean energy that uh, doesn't emit anything at all. And I also think it's important to note one of the things being left out of this discussion is water. Uh, the, the Department of Defense have noticed that, uh, you know, the state of Indiana, most notably the southern half of Indiana, is is in danger of water shortages in the future. And we must uh, be aware of that water energy nexus and the water used to generate electricity as over 70 percent of daily withdrawals in the state of Indiana are to cool our thermoelectric power plants. And we must get away from, uh, you know, that, that water energy nexus and get smarter with how we use our resources. All right. I'm, I'm afraid we're out of time. It's been a lively conversation today. I very much want to thank Phil Stevens uh, from Indiana University, Kerwin Olson from the Citizens Action Coalition, and Cam Carter from the uh, State Chamber of, Indiana Chamber of Commerce. For producer Lacey Scarmana, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Mary Catherine Carmichael, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. You can find podcasts of this and other WFIU programs at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu.